Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number seven with our guest, Jared Morris. On today's episode... You know, if you're going to be successful at something, you have to be confident. Maybe even a twinge arrogant, but certainly not too much. And you can't be hubristic. You know, you can't, you can't go too far to one side, but you have to have confidence because if you're not willing to step up and say, I can do this, why would anybody else believe in you, right? So you got to have that pride. But at the same time, if there's not something pulling that pride back toward the middle, you know, and to the point where you get too arrogant or you get too conceited and you think that you have all the answers, now that's a recipe for failure. So you need that humility combined with it. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah. I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. I could easily title this episode, Two Dads Talking, because as it turned out, my guest is also a fairly new father. He has a two-year-old daughter, and while we do compare some notes about the trials and tribulations of fatherhood, we go deeper in one specific direction that still completely impresses me. Our guest is Jared Morris, and over 10 years ago, he coined the word primility. As he details in our chat, primility is a combination of the words pride and humility. The more we get into the basis of primility, the more you realize how deep those two words connect with everything we do and permeate so much of our daily existence. I've known Jared for almost five years now and had the absolute pleasure of having him speak in person at one of my live events, and you'll quickly see that Jared is one of the most down-to-earth, likable people you'll ever come across. I've already listened to this episode multiple times, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy Two Dads Talking. Here we go. Hey there, here we are. Thank you for tuning in. It is the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey, and I hope you are enjoying these episodes as much as I am enjoying creating them. Look at that. The on-air button is blinking brightly. Welcome into the studio, and we are getting right underway. Joining me today is someone that I've known for at least four or more years. In fact, 
back in 2014. He was a speaker at one of my live events, and I am thrilled to be connected with him and to him still. Let's bring him right on. It is the podcast legend himself. It's Jared Morris. What's going on, Jared? And I'm doing great, Josh. I appreciate you uh, you bringing me on. I appreciate you uh, making that podcast legend uh, moniker up. I certainly don't think that applies, but I appreciate you saying it anyway. Uh, but it's it's great to see you. It's great to see what you're doing, and uh, I'm just excited to chat. I really appreciate that. So. In the time that we originally, four to five years, which is like in internet time, it's forever, including the fact that your world has significantly changed. You are a married man and you have a, a little girl, right? A little daughter. How, how old is your daughter today? I do. Uh, today she's one and tomorrow from the day that we record this, she will be two. Wow. So very, very excited about her second birthday. I could really relate like you. I'm a, uh, I'm a somewhat um, newish dad. I, I have a five-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, and I, I adore every minute of it. How, how are you enjoying it? How has your life changed? It's changed in ways that are really tough to describe and that I never could have predicted, um, but that have been almost universally, unanimously positive. Um, you know, you try to prepare, you know, while my wife was pregnant, you know, we tried to prepare ourselves and everybody tells you what it's going to be like. And so you kind of understand it intellectually, but then she comes and you just feel more emotions and more indescribable feelings than you can even really put into words. And it just, it make it, and I, as you can see, I'm struggling to put it into words. Um, and so I just, you know, I'm just filled with such enthusiasm, such love every day. And we, we just adore her. So it's been, uh, it's been an awesome experience, better than we ever could have predicted. And, uh, you know, it's been two great years and I look forward to every day in the future with her watching her grow. Isn't it amazing how much, like you, I've never, you know, people could tell you things. Like one of the funny things I always remember is before we got pregnant and, and, and gave birth, people always said, uh, oh, you know, get as much sleep now as you can. And you really don't understand what that means. And I, I didn't get more sleep, but I get what they mean. Do you, do you find that you are just learning so much about life and the world? around you and perhaps you from your daughter? Oh, every, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I hope in two years that she has learned some things from me and I hope that she'll learn some things from me moving forward. But I absolutely feel like I'm learning something every day. I mean, you know, specific things like about how humans develop and, and those things, just watching her. But also, you know, just looking at the curiosity that she has with the world and the enthusiasm that she brings to things. And then, you know, kind of thinking to myself and it's like, well, how do I tap back into that? Cause I probably had that at some point, you know? And so, you know, all of that and, 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 and really just the, what it forces you to do in terms of getting your priorities straight, you know, learning how to manage your time, all of those things, because my wife and I talk about that. It's like, man, you know, think back to a couple of years ago, like, we could stay up as late as we want, you know, sleep in until we wanted. And it's like now I think last night I was in bed at like 845 because my daughter gets up really, really early. I was, you know, we're just, it changes things. And if you had told me that a couple of years ago, I would have been like, that sounds like it's going to be awful. And yet now I'm in the midst of it and it's great and I wouldn't change a thing. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Your perspective in really profound ways. And it's also amazing to add to what you said to watch their innocence 
of yes. things is just extraordinary. And it's funny because uh, Monday morning people will say, hey, how was your weekend? And I'm like, well, it was the same as every other day. Like I, I don't get to sleep in, you know, yeah. There's, it's the same. It's, it's the same Monday through Friday. My weekend was exactly the same. Um, mm. I, I, I know in general what you do, but, but share with us, how do you answer the question, what do you do? That's a great question. I've had trouble answering that question for a long time, um, in part because I've been doing so many different things, and in part because some of the things that I was doing were kind of new. And so, you know, talking to my parents or other people who maybe didn't understand the internet and how it works, you know, you, they didn't really get it no matter what I said. Um, I think now it's become a little bit easier because I'm focusing a lot more on the work that Johnny Nastro and I are doing at the showrunner. Uh, really honing in on the thing that I'm the most passionate about, which is helping podcasters. And so I'm a podcasting mentor. And, I, you know, I really like that phrase, you know, in, in, instead of just a coach, because to me, a mentor is someone who's still out there doing it, you know, and leading from the front and hosting their own shows. And, and you know, whereas a coach to me, you've maybe stepped out of doing what you're doing a little bit. And now you're just focusing on teaching others. But, you know, I like to think of myself with the other shows that I host as kind of leading from the front and testing things out and always learning on my own. So then I can provide really useful mentorship to other podcasters who, you know, maybe just haven't had an, uh, the, the time to get as far along as I've become and just trying to share whatever I've learned to help them get to that point. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually really nice now to have something really easy and specific and short and concise to say and know how to explain it because I've actually felt like that's been a challenge for a while. Um, but now, now I feel much better about it. <laughs> yeah. And I know you've been in the digital marketing space for, for really years and you know, you're, uh, you're as much of a, of a writer, right? And a marketer you consider yourself and you have, uh, like you said, thousands literally of shows right now. I think you have what, three different active podcasts going? Yeah, three, three active podcasts, many, many more dormant ones. <laughs> so which what, happens, but what is the draw for you? The draw for me is I love connecting with audience members. That's really what the draw is. I love being able to create that one-on-one -on -one connection. And I think podcasting gives you that ability more than anything else, just because of the nature of the medium and the nature of your voice going into someone else's ears. And not just that, but the places that people listen to podcasts, like people bring the, their favorite podcasts into places. They don't bring anybody else. They bring them in the shower. They bring them to their home when they're doing the dishes. They bring them when they're walking their dog. They bring them in the car when they're driving to work. And so I was actually talking with a guy who listens to the assembly call a couple weekends ago. And he was like, don't take this the wrong way. He's like, but you know, longtime fan of your show. I really like you guys. I actually fall asleep to your show. I'm like, all right, well, I hope that we're not boring and putting you to sleep. He's like, no, no, no. It's like, there's just a familiarity with your voices. And it just, because of that, it kind of puts me to sleep. And then I wake up and I listen to whatever I missed on the, on the show, you know, prior to that. And so like that ability to create these one-on-one -on -one connections, it is a one-to-many medium, but you really want to treat it like it's you and just that one listener. And that ability to do that around topics that I'm really passionate about and enthusiastic about and the whole process of, you know, planning content that I think is going to be really useful and interesting for, for that audience. And then seeing the communities that develop around it. Like there's just, 
there's so many elements of it, so many aspects of it that I find really rewarding and personally fulfilling. And it still kind of boggles my mind some <clears throat> that we have this opportunity, you know, it's because it's pretty easy to take it for granted. Like, how many technological advancements had to happen for us to be able to do what we're doing right now. And I try to be mindful of being great. You know, like we're using this tool zoom right now, which is amazing, right? Well, think about all of the different advancements that had to happen for us to be able to have zoom to get on here and do this. And I, I use zoom myself. I love it myself. And so just thinking about what had to happen to bring us to this point, to be able to have these opportunities is, is it's really um, humbling um, in one sense, and then in the other sense, it just fills me with so much enthusiasm to make the most of it, um, and to you know to do as good a job as I can with with each person who listens to my show to give them a a return on the investment of time that they're making and listening to me. It's absolutely amazing, and I fully agree, certainly. And it's I, I love how you have tapped into your your passion. You've figured it out for yourself. And not only that, but you understand how to position it and how to offer it in a very consumable way to your, to your audience. I mean, that's the goal, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, you, you have to meet people where they are. Um, and I think that's, that's the nice thing that podcasting has done is, you know, a blog post, someone's got to be sitting there reading. It's very hard to do something else while you're reading a blog post. Video, and, and I like video. But if it's video that requires visual attention, you know, people have to stop what they're doing. Podcasting has allowed us as content creators to get into these other more intimate situations with people. And I think that's a big part of the reason why podcasts create such connection. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, and, and, and so you've, you've got to meet people where they are and podcasting really helps you do that. One of your previous projects, uh, I'd love to get your, your in-depth insight into it. It's a word I think you, you coined or invented. It's called primility. primility. Tell me about that. Primility is, it basically is just a combination of the words pride and humility. And I think I, I said, I, I coined that word for the first time in 2005. I was actually, I was working for a company down in Miami. I was selling coupons door to door. Um, the worst and best job I've ever had. Um, I learned so much from it and it was awful in so many ways. But part of what you're doing is, you know, you're kind of, you know, starting your own business and, you know, they're kind of selling you on this dream of building your own business and getting a team of people and all this stuff. And so we had to create a name for our business. And I'd been thinking a lot at that time about what makes someone successful. And I had also been thinking about how much I had struggled in the past with balance because I've always kind of been somebody that would run 100 miles an hour in one direction and get really, really focused and be pretty successful at whatever I was doing, but then a lot of other things would fall by the wayside. So maybe I'd really be working hard, but my relationships would fall off. Or maybe I'd be really into a relationship, but now the other things that I'd be doing would fall off. Um, you know, or maybe my health would fall off. And I just, I found myself really yearning to just find some balance, you know, and find some equilibrium. And so, I wanted to just try and like merge two words together that would help signify that and help remind me of that. And it just, it kind of hit me that, you know, if you're going to be successful at something, you have to be confident, maybe even a twinge arrogant, but certainly not too much. And you can't be hubristic. You know, you can't, you can't go too far to one side, but you have to have confidence because if you're not willing to step up and say, I can do this, why would anybody else believe in you? Right? So you got to have that pride. But at the same time, 
if there's not something pulling that pride back toward the middle, you know, and to the point where you get too arrogant or you get too conceited and you think that you have all the answers, now that's a recipe for failure. So you need that humility combined with it. You need to remember that, you know, yes, you may be very successful, but you probably need a team of people to help you. And yes, you may have many of the answers, but you probably don't have all of them. And you need to learn from the people who came before you. So maintaining that humility, being humble is a great way to balance that. And, you know, you can flip that coin too. If you're too humble, you know, if you don't think you have any answers, if you just sit on the wall and don't do anything, now you're just kind of meek and you're not going to do anything. So you need that pride to pull the humility back. So it just, it was this, it looked like there was this constant tension moving you toward the middle that seemed really beneficial. And so I, you know, made that word and it just kind of became my guiding principle in life. And I have two wristbands on my original gray primility wristband, which the words have actually rubbed off. And then a red one that I made later and I keep them on. And I just always try and remind myself of that because I find that whenever I'm getting a little bit out of balance, it's usually because I'm too far on one side of the spectrum. And then I just need to remember, okay, let me add a little pride or add a little bit of humility. And that pulls me back toward the middle, which is where I want to go so I can move forward. It, it's, my goodness, such a fascinating, smart, intelligent, useful uh, word of those two words. And as you're describing it, I'm, of course, thinking about how I relate to each of those. And in my past, um, I was I was less prideful. I was in the uh, humble humility to a detriment, though. It was, yeah. you know, the 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 coloring of fear just kept me in this low mode that didn't allow me to step up and embrace my pride. Is, does that sound like an accurate assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think. That to a certain extent, that's kind of baked into the name of what you're doing, hidden entrepreneur. You know, it's it is it's someone who's, you know, maybe has all of this, but you know, just feels a little bit too humble. Maybe doesn't feel like, you know, well, what do I really have to contribute? Why is anybody going to care? And that's where you get a little dose of that pride, a little bit of confidence, a little shot of maybe even momentary arrogance that reminds you, wait a minute, you know what? I do have something useful to say, and I do have some experiences that will help other people. And that can help pull you out of that, you know? So I think for everybody, we all kind of fall naturally in different points on the spectrum and certainly at different times and in different contexts, we can be in different places. And so I think just always kind of having that guiding principle to just move yourself back toward the middle. It's kind of like, uh, you know, being out on a lake with a, with a kayak, you know, and you start to drift a little bit. So you just turn on the other side and you drift back toward the middle. And you're always going to drift a little bit. So you just have to constantly be, you know, rowing on either side, you know, one side or the other to just get yourself back pointed in the middle. And you never expect it to be perfect. You never expect it to be pointed in one direction forever. You just want to know which side that you need to row on. And that helps keep you pointed forward, moving, moving in the right direction. Again, such a, such an impressive use of of that word because it's it's relevant to everybody no matter what line of work you're in or what career path you're on i absolutely love that take us back for a minute if you will to the the jared morris growing up as a child what were you like what was your home life like what was the vibe in the house like it was uh, that's a, that's an interesting question. It was a good vibe. You know, my, uh, my parents are still married to this day, 39, 40 years now. They've been together, maybe 41 now. 
Um, my dad was a football coach back in the day. He coached for Indiana University and then for Purdue University. Um, and that's a very demanding job. So he was gone a lot of the time, especially during the season. Um, you know, so my mom, a lot of the, the kind of the child care responsibilities fell to my mom. But I also got to go in with my dad to, you know, go to practice and go to games and be on the field which was a really, really interesting way to grow up. And, you know, if you want to know why two of the podcasts I do right now are sports podcasts about Indiana University basketball, that is why. Because, you know, I grew up in Indiana and we went to basketball games. Um, and basketball was always my first love, even though my dad was a football coach. Um, but that, like, that love was just kind of, you know, bred into me from, from the very beginning. And I've, I've held on to that. And I think a big part of the reason is that when I think back to my childhood, and when I think back to kind of like the emotional connections that I made with things, a lot of them were actually sport moments and like players that played at IU. Because to me, you know, going to the games and being so up close, these guys were like gods. You know, I mean, they were just, you know, the things that they did on the court and, and, and kind of the status that they had in my own head was just, it's incredible. You know, and so I think that emotional connection has just lasted, you know, to today. And obviously I can view it in a, in a more mature way right now, but I'll think about the players who played back in that era. And it's still like 11 or 12 year old me that just holds these guys in such high esteem. Um, and so I think, you know, to a certain extent that was awesome to another extent, it maybe, you know, gave me kind of a warped sense of sports and the importance of sports in the world. And so I've had to kind of detangle that a little bit as I've gotten older and, and kind of prioritize different things. Um, but it was, it was a really good childhood. It was a really happy childhood. And I got to have some really unique experiences because of my dad's job um, that fortunately I found a way to make useful, you know, now well into my 30s. Without having to actually go into being a sports player. Right. Well, that, you know, I would have loved to do that. I mean, I played basketball in high school, you know, thought about playing at a small school in college, but just wasn't, you know, I did not have the requisite athletic ability um, you know, to, to make it beyond that. Um, so if I was going to stay in sports, it was going to have to be either, you know, covering sports or going in, you know, to, you know, coaching or into some kind of administrative position. And I didn't really want to do that. Um, and, and I wasn't even sure that I wanted to write about sports, but when I set up a, a blog for the first time because of a, a, you know, the first ever kind of digital consulting job that I had, I was like, you know, let me just set up a WordPress site so that I can kind of get my feet wet and kind of learn all this stuff. I was like, what do I, what do I want to create content about just to test stuff out? I was like, ah, I'll do sports. And so I started MidwestSportsFans.com and I kind of started and I was like, you know what? I was like, I do like writing because I had been, you know, um, editor of the newspaper in high school, that kind of thing and, and thought about going into sports journalism, but then got away from it. And when I did that again, I was like, you know what? I do, I kind of like doing this and I think I'm actually pretty good at this. And that, you know, kind of led me to where I am today with the two IU basketball shows. What happened in 2009 in regards to a blog article that you wrote? I know that there was some controversy with this. Take us down that path. Yes. Uh, so this was the Raul Abanez incident. Um, and so this was back in the, in the early days of Midwest sports fans. And I was, you know, just kind of covering all different kinds of sports. And... Back at the beginning of that baseball season, uh, Raul Abanez had been a player for the Kansas City Royals and the Seattle Mariners, uh, both teams in the American League. And he went to the National League and was playing with the Philadelphia Phillies. And he just had a ridiculous start to the season. He was hitting all kinds of home runs, doing awesome. And I had him on my fantasy baseball team. 
And so one of the guys in my fantasy baseball league, like posted something in the message board, you know, about, well, clearly Raul Abanez has to be juicing. And if you think back to this time in baseball, you know, this was back when pretty much any time an older player had a really, you know, hot start or a hot stretch, people thought, okay, he's got to be juicing. He's got to be on roids. And so, you know, me kind of being a little bit defensive that someone was calling out my player in the fantasy baseball message board, I was like, well, let's look at this because he's in a new league. Maybe there are other ways to explain this besides just steroids. Like maybe he's in a better lineup, so he's seeing better pitches. Maybe his, the park that he's playing in, because Seattle was a much more cavernous park and Philadelphia was much more homer hitting friendly, especially to left-handed hitters. Like maybe there are other reasons to explain this short-term burst in home runs. And so I, I titled the article, The Curious Case of Raul Abanez and Steroid Speculation. Because it wasn't just the person in my fantasy baseball message board who was talking about this. Like other people had been kind of whispering about it. So I was like, let's just look. So the entire premise of the article, okay, this was stated very early on, is I'm not accusing him of anything. Let's just, let's kind of go through and see if there might be other statistical factors that explain this. Kind of got to the end of the article. Nothing was really compelling enough to say like, that's clearly the reason. So I said, it's probably a lot of these things. But unfortunately, because of the way baseball's testing has gone, you know, we just, we can't really know for sure. So it's fair to question, but no one, no one really knows. Um, that was kind of the, the point of the article. It's like Major League Baseball, get your act together so we can stop wondering about this stuff. Never accused him of doing it at all. So as often happens on the internet, people read a headline and just decide for themselves what the story says. And so this happened and fans of the Phillies were emailing the writer, uh, our Philadelphia writer. And then he goes in and tells Raul Abanez, Hey, you know, some, some little blogger in his, you know, in his mom's basement accused you of using steroids again, which I never did and was quite clear to not do. And so he gets angry and, you know, it's like, I, you know, who's this, this blogger in his mom's basement. And the great irony now, almost a decade later is that just the kind of open, wondering that I did, which I thought was very responsible because I took a statistical analysis at it and was very careful to not accuse anybody of anything. Now things like that happen and you will read on ESPN and national publications, speculation and outright accusations that are far worse than anything that I said. But at this time, it was still early in bloggers being taken seriously. And I think a lot of the national media people were a little bit defensive, um, a little bit protective of their own turf. And so I don't think they wanted to, they, they couldn't accept that there might be someone at MidwestSportsFans.com that had a reasonable take to add to the discussion because I wasn't, you know, on one of the big sites. So it was, it was a really eye-opening experience in terms of number one, if you're going to put something online, you need to be ready to defend it on national television. And that's like, that, that's kind of my big litmus test. It's like, okay, if I went on outside the lines, could I defend this? Because I had to do that. And fortunately what I wrote, I could defend. Um, and the other thing to remember is sometimes people are not going to read your entire piece before they judge it. They're going to read a headline. They're going to see the context of a tweet someone else put on it, but they're going to judge you anyway. And to remember that and to be careful what criticism you take personally and what criticism you actually incorporate into future pieces, because this person criticizing you may not have actually read what you wrote. And that person may not even be your audience anyway. So their opinion really doesn't matter. Um, and I think learning, the, learning those lessons early, I think, really helped me um, to be more confident and able to put content out online and deal with the inevitable reactions that come with it. Goodness, there is so much 
amazingness to that story in that, yes, it's specific to a, a sports incident, but I'm, I'm uh, um, outlining notes here from what you said. And so much of this is really applicable to us as people and individuals and the way we relate to each other, understand each other, communicate with each other. For example, one of the things you said early on in the story was that when somebody said to you or in the, in the forums you were part of, hey, he's probably using steroids, your reaction was, wait, 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 let's see if there's other reasons to explain this. A very mature approach, certainly. And isn't that something that we can use in, in any dialogue we are engaged in with somebody? It would be nice. It would be nice if when you know, someone is accused of something or something like that comes up, if our reaction was, let me try to see if there's a more charitable explanation for this. Now, sometimes there's not, and sometimes people are jerks, or sometimes people are cheaters, or sometimes people end up deserving our scorn, but instead of just taking it for someone else's word, it would be nice if we investigated it ourselves and, and even might maybe gave someone the benefit of the doubt before we just jumped on it and said, yep, I agree, tar and feather that person. Because now that's kind of the, the atmosphere that we're in and stuff just goes nuts online and it becomes a big retweet fest and everybody takes every, you know, the, the context that other people place on something as the gospel. When wait, if you actually get in and read this thing, that's actually not a fair characterization of what it said or that's actually not really what this person meant. You know? And so that's, I, I have a problem with that. And so that's something that I try to do and, and, and I make mistakes on it. It's like just the other day, there was a, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a story about the football coach at North Carolina who was basically saying that, you know, all this stuff about football causing CTE, you know, it's not really true and people are, you know, going too far and killing football and, and it's, it's out of line. And, you know, so I saw someone who tweeted that and was like, you know, this is totally crazy. And I retweeted, I was like, this is insanity. Of course, we know that football causes CTE, like there have been studies and the next day, I read a really well done piece by someone that said, well, actually, when you really get into the data, we're not exactly sure that football causes CTE. Like there's, yes, there's, you know, maybe a, there's a correlation, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's causal. And actually what he said, when you really look at what he said, it was more, let's slow down and get more proof. And I was like, damn. I was like, there I go. I just took what someone else said. And instead of actually investing the 15 minutes to watch his full comments, you know, I just tweeted off this, you know, pithy little tweet accusing him of something. And I went back the next day and had to say, look, you know, I sent this out yesterday. Let me, I need to correct this because actually I think, you know, I think I was kind of wrong about this, you know, and so the, and this article really explains it out well. And so, you know, even when you try and do it, it's so easy to get caught up in the quick reactions and the hot takes. But man, there are so many times when you do that, when you really investigate it and dig into it, it's more nuanced than you thought. Um, so I think if we give each other the benefit of the doubt and try and come up with or, or, or hold charitable explanations for why people might do something and allow ourselves to be proven wrong later instead of the inverse, I think it will help us all out, especially as online content creators. Mm. And how through this, you, you also said one of the things is that it, it helped you uh, when you're putting something out there, one of your tests for yourself is uh, could I could I go public with this? Or, or is this something I could um, go public with and feel comfortable about? Um, how, 
how important is that as a, like you said, whether we are content creators or business owners on some level, some entrepreneur, you're going to want to put yourself out there. To what extent is it, I don't care what anybody else thinks because this is what I think? Um, I think it's really hard to create content and be successful at it if you don't care what other people think. Now, I think there's a difference between caring what other people think and letting that influence or change your opinion. Like, I don't think you necessarily need to say, I want to be liked by everybody, so let me not take a stand. But I think with anything that you create, it should be created for a particular audience. And you should care what that audience thinks. You know, whether, whether and, and look, maybe you're telling that audience something that they don't want to hear, but you should care that they respect your approach and that they listen to you or that they believe in, in the authority that you have to speak on this. So I don't buy into the notion of not caring what other people think, but I think you've got to care about what the right people think. And I think you've got to use that to inform what you're doing to write something that is useful. And because you know who you're writing to and because you care what they think, that drives you to create something better. I love that. Let's go back to your uh, upbringing. So um, you got through high school. What did you want to go to college for and study at that point? When I went to my orientation, I was going to do journalism. And then when I got to the orientation, I found out that Indiana had a sports marketing and management program. And I thought that sounds awesome. So I'm going to do that. So I switched. And then after my freshman year, uh, two buddies and I got together and we had this idea of creating a production company and becoming filmmakers. If you recall Project Greenlight, which Matt Damon and Ben Affleck started way back in the day, we, uh, we got excited about that. We wanted to write a script. And so we wrote a short film after our freshman year and produced that. And then one of my buddies who had been going to college in Arkansas transferred to Indiana and we lived together and spent all this time writing a script. And so we had gotten all of this equipment from investors when we had made our first short film and we're like, well, we should do something with this. You know, digital technology is like the next wave. So we, we did some music videos for local artists. We did kind of some corporate videos, you know, some things to kind of help make some money. Um, and so we, we decide, okay, if we're going to launch this production company, if we're going to start a business, we should all kind of have some different areas of expertise. And so I decided to switch my major to finance because I was designated the guy to learn finance, even though I really don't like finance and wasn't really that interested in it. So it wasn't that great of a decision. Um, but it made, it made a lot of sense for us at the time. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so we did that. I ended up picking up entrepreneurship later, but it really, the things I studied in college really kind of meandered um, and went round and round. But fortunately, I had some really good experiences on the side that I think gave me as much of an education as the things that I actually learned in the classroom, which to me is probably the best, the best way to do your time at university is if you can have that combination. Um, and so I, I feel like I was pretty lucky to be able to have that. What was your job or career right after uh, college? So I didn't know what I wanted to do right after college. And I was, you know, going to some different events, trying to, to figure some stuff out. And I saw a presentation um, by the lady who started Teach for America, which is an incredible program where they take people who have done really well in college. And for two years, you basically go into some of the worst schools in America and teach. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing where you're like, wait a minute. So you're telling me I'm going to pass up like a well-paying job in a city that I want to live in and really getting a head start on my life. 
And instead of that, I'm going to go into an inner city school with awful conditions for very little pay and, you know, have a really, and and, then by the way, these are people who did not study teaching either. And I'm going to go teach. What is this? A Michelle Pfeiffer movie? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, obviously the way that you're going to get people to do this is, you know, you just, you create an emotional reaction with them that they want to help and that they, you know, that you see the bigger picture and her presentation was phenomenal. And so I applied for Teach for America. I did not get accepted into Teach for America, which was, which was disappointing, but it just so happened that, um, one of my family members, uh, it's my aunt's, it was my aunt's husband's mom. So I don't know exactly like a step grandma or I'm not exactly sure what that makes her, but she had started some schools in South Florida, basically had taken like bungalows that had been set up during hurricane Andrew as like, you know, emergency housing. And she had turned these into school classrooms. And so she had started basically an alternative school where kids who had gotten caught up in the criminal justice system had gotten kicked out of their own schools this was like a last stop before jail. So, you know, and, and the crimes that, that high school kids were committing in South Florida were a lot different than the kind of crimes people might have committed in suburban Indiana. Like we're talking about grand theft auto, assault and battery, drug possession. Like these are serious crimes for kids that are 13, 14, 15 years old. I mean, totally different world from what I was used to. But she had a school and had an open teaching position in reading and so I took that position and, and that was the, the job that I, that I immediately took out of school when I moved down to Miami, um, which was a, you know, a really rewarding experience in a lot of ways, but something that I just absolutely was not prepared for mentally, emotionally, like professionally, just from a skill standpoint, because like, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I can read, I can teach people how to read. But number one, that's really hard with anybody. Number two, to do it, you know, with a classroom of kids who really kind of rebel against those authority figures until you can really earn their trust. It, I mean, it's just, it, was a, it was a really difficult thing to do. Um, and I don't think I did it particularly well. Um, I don't think I handled it particularly well. Um, so it's kind of one of those things like, I'd love to see how I would do with it now. I feel like I could do a much better job with it now. Um, but 22-year-old me um, was not ready for the responsibility of that position. So how did that change? How did you move about from that? Well, I mean, I, you know, it kind of got to the point where uh, like there was, there was kind of like a main campus and then we would like take a bus out to, you know, to some of the other uh, classroom areas. And it kind of got to the point toward the end where like I almost had panic attacks and like didn't like get on the bus um, and go back. And I was just, I was really struggling and then, you know, called in sick a couple of days just because I couldn't face it because I, and you know, it's funny, like it wasn't necessarily the kids. Like I actually developed some pretty good relationships with some of the individual kids, but it was like, you know, one time, like to give an example, like one of the rules is you can't let the kids use your phone because you know these kids are not free to come and go. Like they are there. It's a lockdown facility. It's just, you know, they're trying an educational facility instead of a jail. And so, you know, that was one of the rules is you can't let the kids use your telephone. Pretty straightforward rule, right? Well, you know, this kid came up to me one day and I developed a good relationship with him. And he's like, you know, Mr. Morris, Mr. Morris, I, you know, my grandma is really, really sick. I just want to call, see how she's doing. Turned out he, so, you know, I let him use my phone because I'm like, well, geez, you know, I mean, the kid's, you know, grandma's sick. I, you know, want to help him out. And turned out he called friends and set up like a breakout 
to break out of the school that night. Um, which, you know, and, and that was the problem is I was going to have to be much more of a hard ass than I was ready to be because it just wasn't my personality. Um, and so, you know, so I just ended up having a, you know, a talk with, you know, with the people who ran the school and just said, you know, just it's not the right fit and ended up leaving um, and, you know, left on fine terms and everything. But it, it just, it was, uh, you know, I, I think back about it now, like I got to help coach the football team and, you know, I, I thought had some good moments of connection with kids who had kind of been given up on. And I think, you know, the biggest thing I learned is that so many of these kids just didn't have adults who cared about them or who would take an interest in them. And a lot of their anger and lashing out was a veneer that covered their sadness, you know, and covered, you know, they didn't want to be jerks, but that was kind of how they got through the world. And if you could eventually pierce through that, you might be able to get through to them, but you had to understand, you know, whereas like me, I can meet somebody one time and trust them. Because I grew up with, two, I mean, I grew up in a very fortunate environment where I didn't have to question the things that were going on around me. Like I was able to develop trust and a lot of these kids weren't able to develop that. And so their first reaction was, I'm going to distrust. I'm going to push you away, push you away, push you away. And I guess if you keep coming back, maybe I'll believe that you really mean it. But I've been given up on so many times, it's going to be tough for me to believe it. And I wasn't mature enough at that time, I think, to empathize with that and not take it personally, which again, I think I would be better at now, but who knows, you know, it's a lot, it's easier to say um, than it would be to do. I love how you mentioned that you're, you're aware that their anger was most likely covering up the sadness. Isn't that what, I mean, geez, I think I've done that for so long and more to the point, going back to our original uh, conversation about being fathers to, um, you know, young children today, isn't, do you find like what I'm doing is I'm sort of, you know, cause who knows how to father? How do you do it right? How do you learn? You sort of learn on the job, right? Are you, I'm finding what I'm doing is I'm just, I'm just parenting in a way that I sort of wished I was parented and going from there. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, Heather and I, my wife, we, you know, we've had a lot of talks about things our parents that we thought they did well, maybe things that we didn't think that they did so well. And it's really easy, I think, to focus on the things that you wish your parents had done differently. And every now and then, I think we have to step back and remember like, okay, we focus a lot on the five to 10% of things that, are, that we don't like that our parents did and try to do that differently. But that obscures all the stuff they got right. You know, staying together, providing a loving house, supporting us, like, like all, you know, all these things. And it's like, you know, it's easy to take those things for granted. And, and, and this is actually where like, I, I have found you because I mean, we did so many, so much research beforehand. I've read so many books and listened to so many parenting podcasts, you know? And so it's really easy to think that we have the answers, but it's like, you don't really know that until you've gone through it. And even now we're only, we've only gone through it for two years with one child. We don't know if the things we're doing just happen to work well with her or who knows if they're going to have a bad impact later on. We just don't know. So I think remembering to have humility 
is as a parent is really important. And if you don't remember it, the humility pretty much smacks you in the face because as soon as you think you have things figured out, at least in my experience so far, things change and you have to kind of figure them out again. So, it, but to answer your question, yeah, I mean, there, there are things that we pinpointed about the ways that we were brought up that we wanted to do differently, but it's really easy to sometimes forget that the entire foundation of how we parent, I mean, devotion to our kid, wanting to do everything to give her the best life possible, that is absolutely a foundation that we learn from our parents. And the other stuff makes a difference, but that's the most important thing. And so we're really lucky that we both had that example because it keeps us on the same page. Yeah. And I could tell you uh, from personal experience, um, if having one child, you think you got it right. Having another child doesn't just double the workload. There is a whole dynamic that 10 X's everything. The energy <laughs> changes. You learn how wrong you've had it all along. And my yeah. goodness, now it's this like, you know, small little army against, you know, we are outnumbered. It's me and my wife, two against two. And it, you know, they're, they're, they're leading that uh, brigade there. There's no yes. just like, uh, well, we had it right once and let's just, no, there's all kinds of crazy dynamics. I, uh, yeah. I hope you could uh, get into that situation. Well, we're hoping. We're hoping to have a second. So we're, we're hoping to, to learn all about what that's like. <laughs> yeah. And then also the other thing we have to remember about our parents' generation is they didn't have Google. I mean, let's right. realize what we have. We have the internet. We have GPS. I mean, I always wonder, how did we get from point A to point anything back in the day? How did we do it before GPS? How did our parents do it? You know, taking like like little road trips to the relative. You remember you had to like stop off at the gas station, get a, uh, a dime and use a pay phone to let them know or stop into the gas yeah. station and, and ask for directions. It's a different, it's, so we do have it. Um, we have it made, but I think it's like, you know, we, we still feel overwhelmed and out of control, even with all of the quote unquote amenities. Yeah, that's true. What is your take on, on money? Is money important? Money is very important. Yeah. I mean, I don't think money brings you happiness necessarily. Like at least from studies that I've read, it seems like a certain level of money brings you happiness, but then beyond that, it doesn't increase your happiness. So it's like you need enough money to be stable, to be able to feel like you're secure, to be able to feel like you're not, you know, one missed paycheck or one emergency away from, you know, losing your house and all that stuff. So I think, I think money does make an impact there. But once you get to that point, having more of it doesn't seem to actually make you happier. So, you know, people who say like money can't buy you happiness, I don't think that's really true because I think you need a certain level of money to just have the security to be able to, you know, experience kind of that, that consistent feeling. But I think just striving for more and more and more seems to put you on a treadmill to actually reducing your happiness than having more of it. How do you define success? It's a good question. I define success by being able to do things regularly that I'm enthusiastic about that bring value enough to other people that it is able to support me and my family. That's what I think success is. Um, and to me, I think if you take any of those three components out, it makes it really difficult. And actually, I'm, you know, kind of the stage I'm at right now is... I feel like I've got the first part. You know, I think I'm doing a lot of things that I'm enjoying and, and enthusiastic about. 
you know, I feel like I'm doing things that are bringing value to other people, but now it's about building the business plan around it so that it's bringing in enough revenue. And my wife, you know, she's, she went back to work about a year ago and has been the, you know, the primary breadwinner while I've been taking care of my daughter. And then we put her in preschool. And so now I've been able to attack it more full time, but I'm still trying to get, you know, the money that I'm bringing kind of back to the level that it was before, which, you know, when you go out a little bit more on your own, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit of a step back there. So I'm kind of trying to get that third part down, but I do have enough belief that if I spend enough days being enthusiastic about my work and providing value to people that the third part will come if, you know, if I can put the right plan in place and pay attention enough. How do you view failure? I view failure as something that should be disappointing in the moment. Because to me, when you have really worked hard at something and fail at it, you should feel disappointed. So in the short term, it's disappointing. But in the long term, it should be something that you look back on and are actually grateful for because of the lessons that you can learn from it. Because there are some lessons that you can only learn from failure. That, you know, it's kind of the irony of it is that if you're just successful all the time, you're never going to learn some of the most important lessons. And yeah, it's not like we ever want to try to fail, but if we're pushing out of our comfort zones and if we're trying new things, we should fail. And if we're not ever failing, that might be a sign that we're not doing enough, that we're not pushing ourselves out of our comfort zones and giving ourselves the opportunity to grow. What mantra do you live by today? You know, I still live by the same mantra that I've lived by for the past 13 years, which is that I just want to try my best to keep my pride and humility in balance. Um, and, and really I think of it more as a practice than anything else. And this is something that I learned, you know, when I was doing yoga way back in the day, which I haven't done in a while and really would like to get back to, but you know, it used to be like, I'm going to keep my pride and humility in balance. Like that was the goal. And I think it was helpful to have the realization that it's never going to just happen. It's a practice and it's constantly going to go out of balance. So you just have to bring it back in. But that to me is the mantra that I try to live by because I feel like, any other mantra that I have or believe in, when I distill it down, to me, it makes the most sense in those terms. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? I did. I don't know that I do anymore. Um, I think sometimes things just happen and we find the reason for it. Like, so I mean, I, I think you can really go either way with that. Um, but I think what's, what's really important is to understand that things happen and it's up to us to find the reason for why they happen. So whether that equates to things happen for a reason, I find it more useful to think of them as two separate kind of uh, things, for lack of a better word. Like the thing happens and now we've got to find the meaning and take the action that makes, that, makes us able to look back at that and say that happened for a reason. But I don't think that happens without us being proactive in how we view it and how we think about it. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways today? I'm not religious. Uh, I would like to be more spiritual. Um, I think that is probably an element of my life that's missing uh, that I would like to, you know, to get to like my wife and I, there's a, a Unitarian church that's here in town. And we've thought about, you know, going and doing something like that. Cause you know, I, my mom is Jewish, my dad's Christian. And so they, they kind of left it open, which I appreciated and have always appreciated at the same time though. I've always wondered, you know, people who just grew up believing that one religion is the right thing. 
there's a certain sense of security there, you know, and a certain sense of like, this part of the world is kind of fixed for them. And most of the time, I don't like that. <laughs> like, I like the view that I have on it now. But sometimes I'm like, it would be interesting to know what that kind of security feels like. Um, so I, I struggle with that because I want to give my daughter some kind of foundation that she can take and then make her own decisions based on. But, you know, I don't want to like suggest that one thing is the right answer, but I also don't want to give her nothing. So I, I really struggle with what's the best way to do that. Um, and, and I think part of it is I need to be better about leading by example of opening myself up to spiritual experiences and exploring more rather than leaving it over here as a thing that I've always kind of been ambivalent about and am not sure that I'll ever find an answer to. What do you think happens when our time here on earth is all over? I have no idea. Um, and I'm okay with that. Like that to me is one of those questions that we will never, I mean, if we ever find out an answer to that question, like that would be amazing. <laughs> like I would love to be there to hear the answer to that, but I have a really hard time focusing on it too much because I think we'll never know. Um, and so to me, like we know that we're here, we know we have these days. So I want to focus on those and be pleasantly surprised, I guess, or disappointed either way, you know, if there's something to be pleasantly surprised or disappointed by when that time comes. Yeah, it's, um, it's really a, uh, obviously a uh, deep sort of question. And um, I, in my past, when I was more lost and more depressed, I feared that unknown uh, a heck of a lot more than I do now. And I guess it, it's sort of the, the righteousness of it all that now I feel that I'm, I'm, I'm living more of my truth. And like you said, um, you said, I don't know, and I'm okay with that. And, and me too. I'm, I'm finally, my goodness, took me a, a, a long, long while. I'm okay with that, with that <laughs> unknown. You know, you know, what's funny. The fun, one of the funniest things about being a parent is I think back to, you know, when I was two, like when I was the age that my daughter is, or, or even a little bit older, like looking at my parents <clears throat> and thinking, man, they must have it all figured out, you know? And I think about now, like all the indecision that I have, the insecurities, the not knowing. And I'm like, wait a minute, were my parents like that back then? Yeah, they probably, like, why wouldn't they have been? And it, it, uh, it's, and it probably is something that you can really only like truly, truly empathize with your parents once you become one. I used to hate it when my mom would tell me that, you know, like you're only going to know this when you become a parent. I used to hate it and I still don't really like it, but I get it because she's kind of right, <laughs> you know? And it's, you know, thinking, thinking back about that, it's like, you know, you, to a certain extent, you're, I mean, they were still probably figuring it out. And even now as grandparents, they're still trying to figure it out. Exactly. And it's so, it's so, so true. Uh, My, my five-year-old daughter, you know, no secret. She oftentimes will give us a run for her money and really test us and push us and see what's what. And my wife was telling me that, you know, and uh, her mom, wonderfully enough is, um, you know, she's around, she's helpful. Uh, She, you know, uh, my wife will just unload the complaints to her mom, like, oh, I can't take this sometimes. And her mom has said over and over again, "Um, you were the exact, (laughs) exact same way. Mm -hmm. It's just, 
up the ladder. It's, uh, and, and that's, that's an interesting thing too. You know, you mentioned like your daughter pushing boundaries and that I find that is going to be, I think, and you can tell me from, but I think that's going to be one of the most challenging things because I want, I want my daughter pushing boundaries. I want her to be stubborn. Like I want her to be curious. I want her to have me say something and kind of try and push it to the edge to see where it goes. I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to discourage that because I think it'll be such a good mentality for her to have when she gets older. But man, I'm sure it probably makes some of the moments difficult and frustrating because just when we look, I said, do this, let's just do this, <laughs> you know, because sometimes you yeah. want that to happen, but it's like, but you know, you don't want to discourage her from going after what she really wants either. So it's hard. I'm going to, I'm going to drop my daughter off for a week. And then you'll, you'll let me know yeah. how it goes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, like, and, and then like, you know, um, I get all the advice, like, you know, my, my parents are of course wanting to give me the best advice they can. And I'll say, oh, you know, um, Danica's doing this and I don't know how to do that with her. And they're like, well, you just have to tell her this, this, and this. So I'm like, Danica, you do that. You're not going to go to camp tomorrow. And what does she say? All right. I don't want to go to camp tomorrow. Yeah. Now I'm back. At, <laughs> hang on, dad. What do Crap. I do now? She, she doesn't want to go to camp camp tomorrow help me so yeah. it's, it's always one they're yeah. always one step ahead i got one of those stubborn uh beautiful girls and i understand what you're saying you want them to to be individual to be full yeah. of zest and life and um i really think what it comes down to and goes back to me learning so much as a person from her and of course my uh, adorable son harrison um that they just you know, are themselves. And it's not about what they are doing or aren't doing. Sure, you want to parent and keep them safe and in line and on track, but it's really about your reaction. That's all we can control. And that's yeah. the conversation I had with my wife recently. Uh, you know, our, our immediate desire is, oh, I want to control Danica and control this. And well, that might be a little more difficult than first control your reaction. Can relate to that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's great advice, not just in parenting, but in anything, because people are always going, you know, whether it's your kids or anybody else, people are always doing things and you may like them or you may dislike them. All you can really do is react to it. And that's all you can control because you can't control what other people are going to do. So mm -hmm. good advice to keep in mind, no matter what you're doing. Exactly. And it helps. Um, then you are reactive uh, with a completely different energy, which I believe is what sets people off and creates the tone and the vibe for any situation uh, anyway. So that's what I think. I will yep. leave you with this final question, Jared. How would you like to be remembered? How would I like to be remembered? Um, I think I want to be remembered first and foremost as a, as a good dad. Um, and a part of being a very important part of being a good dad is being a good husband. So I think those are the two things that I, that, you know, take everything else out. If, you know, if my daughter is, you know, proud of who I was to her as a dad, and if my wife is, you know, proud of who I was as a husband to her, those are the most important things. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, going back to my definition of success, I would just like to be remembered as somebody who did things that he was enthusiastic about that you could tell through my work that I was enthusiastic about, um, but that helped people. Um, and, and that's really it. And, and I would like 
you know, when people are remembering me, I guess, when I'm not here to have a story about how I helped them or how something that I said brought them value or helped them get from this point to another point. Um, I think, you know, as many of those bricks as you can stack up, um, that to me is, is kind of the measure of a good life. So the two most important ones are the two, uh, the two wonderful, uh, uh, the, the wonderful girl and the wonderful woman that I live with. And then as many as I can stack up beyond that, um, that's what I'd like to be remembered for. Well, you're certainly on that path from my point of view. Again, a handful of years uh, knowing you, watching you, listening to you, and certainly learning from you. I thank you. Uh, it seems like we're just two dads talking, and uh, <laughs> I appreciate your candor through this whole entire conversation. And truly want to thank everybody for tuning in, listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed one of the coolest guys I know, Jared Morris. Thank you, my man. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. This was a really fun interview. Great questions. Your, I mean, your enthusiasm comes across just phenomenally. So it was, uh, it was really fun to be able to take part in this and to be able to talk with your audience. So thank you. My absolute pleasure. Till next time, everybody out there, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.